0: On this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show, I'll be speaking with Brenda Simmons on the life of a black Presbyterian philanthropist in the 19th century out on Long Island. We're talking about Pierce Concer. He was a former slave. He was a whaler. He was a business owner. He was an entrepreneur. We'll learn more about his history and how he became known as the first African-American to set foot on Japanese soil in 1845, and much, much more. Brenda Simmons joins us on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. Well, Brenda Simmons, thank you so much for joining me on The Anthony Bradley Show today. I am excited to have this conversation because I stumbled upon this incredible historic figure as I was on Long Island. And I looked down and I saw a name and a mural and I look back and I saw a house and I started to Google things. And I'm jumping up and down in the middle of the park. And I'm thinking, why has no one heard of this man? And why don't we know this history? So in the process, folks, of me searching for someone in America who knew about this man and knew about this man's history, I was led to the ever brilliant Brenda Simmons. And let me tell you something. This woman knows her history and particularly the history of the African American community on Long Island and the Hamptons in particular. So I'm I'm excited to have this conversation with you, Brenda. So welcome, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for having me. And I'm excited to share this history with you. And I'm so glad you stumbled across it. I want the world to know about Pierce Gonser
0: so his name is pierce Conser. it's spelled p-y-r-r-h-u-s last name is Conser. he was born in 1814 and i was fascinated by this history because in 1814 in the deep south where i'm from my family was still enslaved on the bradley plantation in escambia county alabama But it seemed that he was born under different circumstances. If I remember correctly, slavery was abolished in New York State at the end of the 18th century, I think in the 1790s. But he somehow found himself in the context of slavery still. I I was really confused on that. Can you tell us the, the circumstances of his birth and his early, early childhood?
1: Yes, as you said, he was born March 17th, 1814 right here in the village of Southampton. And he was taken away from his mom at five years old and sold to a local family called the Pelcho family to work on their farm. And as you said, that's really kind of what we have gone back and forth about, you know, about the, you know, according to the law, the abolition of slavery in New York was in 1799. But he literally worked on that farm until 1832. So technically he was, you know, in terms of the statue, it was about 10 years before he was legally freed. And we're still trying to find details regarding about how he was freed, whether he paid for his freedom or whether they freed him. And we're still technically not sure of that, to be honest with you, but we're leaning toward the fact that we might've been freed by the Cooper family, which we will get into, you know, as we continue this conversation.
0: So let me let me ask you a question just in general about, black freedom in the early 1800s and the hamptons in southampton were people were african americans free to walk around and roam and buy property i mean what was what was life like for african americans in that part of the country back then
1: you know the thing that you know when i asked that question i know that you know the largest population of enslaved people in the northern colonies came in through Nathaniel uh, Sylvester. And that was a lot of enslaved, first enslaved people that came through Sylvester Matter and in, in, uh, Shelter Island, like in 16, 1654. So most of the people throughout, you know, Long Island were not free, they were slaves. I mean, they do have some parts where they talk a lot about There were underground railroads here. We have a lot of places where there's indications of the underground railroad. So in that sense, you know, what we can find is a lot of people. They see in the place, and um, we do now a project called In Plain Sight Project. And that project is really doing, we found this this one little uh, slave plaque. Name was Ned. And then as we continue to do the research, because they were saying, you know, there this thing where you know slaves been in Long Island and New York, but there were. We have a lot of evidence. I mean, we got to a point now we have over 300 or more slaves as it's been identified in East Hampton. And we're moving that in-plane site project down to, you know, further east.
0: So basically there were slaves in the 17th, 18th century Slavery was officially abolished, it sounds like, in 1799, but because it was abolished in the law, didn't mean it was abolished in practice.
1: Exactly. And that's exactly the point that we've been making in this In Plain Sight project, that so many people were still enslaved at that time. And the thing that we're twisting a little bit with this, Anthony, we kind of twist this a bit to talk about the how economically they... In wealthy, this whole Long Island. So that's the kind of twist, you know, so many times we talk about, you know, the slavery and, you know, the bad, well, it was all bad as far as I'm concerned, but we're making a twist of it talking about how economically they, you know, made this Long Island wealthy.
0: Right, and so there was, and this this was most certainly the case down South as well, and in other parts of the world, to be completely honest, where, where slavery was abolished on paper, was abolished legally. But it wasn't abolished in practice for some 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 years later, maybe 30 years later. It was almost like we are abolishing the new institution of enslavement, but we're not yet going to dismantle the existing manifestations or operations of slavery and slave plantations. And as we often said down in the South, I mean, slavery was abolished in the law. But it wasn't abolished until your particular town decided to abolish it, which was on their time schedule, not of course, on the slaves' time schedule in terms of their their enslavement. So I'm wondering if you go back to Pierce for just a moment. So Pierce grew up in a context in the Hamptons where there were some free and some enslaved African Americans there. And somehow he found himself in becoming a whaler. Now, I'll be honest. I'll be completely honest. I had no idea. I have no idea. And I've been to school four times and I had absolutely no idea that there were black whalers in the 18th and 19th century. Absolutely no idea. So could you give us a little context in terms of how Pierce found himself becoming a whaler?
1: You know, how I want to answer this, um, Anthony, For me, I think he was exposed to that. It was that that was the economic highlight of of jobs or, you know, the money making year on Long Island. And his mother was a slave of the Cooper family. And when he became on this famous ship that, you know, we're going to talk about um, the ship called Manhattan, the captain of that ship was named Arcata Cooper. So he was a family of the Cooper. So this is my, you know, really interpretation of how he kind of got involved with that as a whaler. And so he became a self-taught steerer on the whaling ship. And if you really think about that, that was one of the most important jobs on that ship to steer that ship so they can get those whales. So that was my interpretation of how he got to be a whaler. And I mean, I can go on if you want me to continue about that story. If not, we can come to that another time, but how he was on that ship, the ship called Manhattan.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll get to the ship in just a moment. So I'm curious to know was he an outlier as a black whaler? Was he the like the only black whaler in on Long Island where there are lots of black whalers? Is this something black people did back then?
1: You no, know, I did a research for that because you know, I know I want to make sure I get this question correct. And I found, um, they did research, and in 1982, they found documentation for estimates that more, before the Civil War, there were as many as 3,000 Africans, West Indies and Africans, American Blacks, manning the American whaling fleets. And that most Civil War, post-Civil War, excuse me, there were even more. And these are the standard issue harpoon, they discovered, was invented by a black man named Lewis Temple. Okay, yeah, okay, you ready? And perhaps more impressive of all, some 40 vessels were built during the whaling Golden Era, were designed and built by another black man named John Marshall.
0: Now, just to give people some perspective here, these are ships that would sail as far south as Japan. Yes. It, they would spend sometimes a year, sometimes a year and a half, sometimes two yes. years on a whaling trip and then they would come back with all this whaling meat and whaling oil that people would use the oil I believe in their lamps and things like that. So this wasn't they weren't just sort of going off the coast of of New York. They were sailing across the world. So Pierce himself found he found himself in the context of this whaling industry. And he was on the ship called Manhattan. And there's some really interesting details about that ship and his experience. So that ship, I believe, and you said that ship was either owned by the Cooper family or was 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 captained by the Cooper family. So he found himself on the Manhattan ship directed by this Cooper family. And that ship sailed down to Japan And what happened on that trip that was somewhat historic, I believe, when Cooper, when Pierce experienced and interacted with with some Japanese there? What what happened there? You know,
1: the thing I also want to make sure the audience know that, you know, when they did these voyages, they kept really great logs. So these information, I'm a journalist, so I don't like to make up stories. So this information I'm sharing with you are actually from logs that they did on the voyages. And so I would love to share that he was on the ship called Manhattan and Captain Mercator Cooper was the captain. And they was voyaging into Japan and they came across two wrecked Japanese ships. And at that time, Japan was in embargo, so they didn't let anybody in. But because they rescued their people, they allowed them to come in. And when they allowed them to come in, uh, they're saying that Pierce Constant was the first black person that they saw. And so they actually began to try to rip his skin off They tried to one because they had never seen a black man before. So, this was an amazing, amazing trip. And then, the other thing that really we have to acknowledge with this is this you know, you've heard of um, Commander Perry's, Matthew Perry. He was the first United States Navy commander to come into Tokyo. But we have to really significantly say that I believe that voyage into Japan by Makeda Cooper and Pierce Consort kind of opened the door for Commander Matthew Perry to come in. And I was like, I think it was July 8th, July 8th, 1953, I believe. 1853, I'm so sorry.
0: So Pierce is on this whaling ship called the Manhattan, goes down to Japan and encounters Japanese. I mean, I'm increasingly curious how they even communicated in terms of the language barrier with English versus Japanese I have no idea how that would have happened in the You know
1: that's the funny thing about they mentioned that that they said that that was something they were wondering as well but they must have said some kind of a sign language or whatever but they made a point in the logs which I thought was very interesting they made a point saying how Pierce had a melodic voice and they were saying and plus he's a devoid christian so they were they were alluding to the fact is if Pierce did some singing or he had something to do that made them feel more comfortable to let them come in. So this is, you know, I I just add something, sometimes my little interpretation, but I know they emphasize in the logs that he had a a Malak, voice. And so that's, you know, something that I just felt too, how would they communicate? I felt the same way. I felt the same way that you felt Anthony, like how would they communicate? But somehow they must have been communicated because I just you know, fast forward, we did an archaeological dig on the on his property, and we found a, a calligraphy brush that we know is from Japan, it was probably a gift, and also Captain Makeda Cooper's house, they found this beautiful letter or letter or holder, and they know it's a, a Japanese uh, gift. So they must have had some great communication, but they said though they had to. They didn't, like, let them directly come in. They had to, like, escort them in, you know. So it's a, you know, historical event, needless to say.
0: Yeah, and we're we're talking in the early 1800s. I mean, this Manhattan voyage was really incredible, A, just by definition, to sail from New York to Japan, which was extraordinary, but to do it with a crew that had African-Americans on it. And then thirdly, I think it's incredible that somehow Pierce's presence on that ship, maybe out of curiosity, maybe that was it, maybe also because of his presence, he might have been the reason that they were so amenable to them entering into their cargo space in terms of that, that embargo, right? So Pierce's presence may have facilitated them allowing them to come in even though they had rescued some shipwrecked Japanese crew but Pierce's presence for some reason likely might have been the vehicle that opened that up and as you noted that might have also been the catalyst that opened up trade between the U.S. and, and Japan that continues to this day. I was also fascinated by this story as well so he goes on this whaling trip and by the way he was a whaler. He, this wasn't his only trip, right? I mean, he, he did this for years and years and years. So he comes back, he comes back from this whaling adventure trip. And what I found out is in 1848, he sails to San Francisco. Now i kind of looked into this a bit. It would have required them sailing South down the East coast, down South America, back around and back up the West coast of San Francisco for some gold rush interest. Do, do you know anything about that story?
1: I do know a little bit about that. And the interesting thing about that, it's almost like a short story, to be honest with you, because unfortunately it, seems, it appears that a group of them from here decide to go there because it was the gold rush. So let's, you know, let's venture out. And, you know, they took a gamble, quote unquote, to go there and do this. And it came, according to the journal, they said that they didn't do well. And they had some kind of differences. Something went down and they had some kind of difference. And it got to a point it was like every man for himself getting back home. And thank God, yeah, I know, somehow, you know, thank God, you know, concert eventually got back home. And then that's when he started his taxi ferry business.
0: So he found a way back from San Francisco home to the Hamptons in 1848-49 on a boat. And this is the
1: thing that, you know, we still, you know, getting more and more information because just like you're, you're questioning that, like, really, how did that happen? All we know is they emphasize there was an issue between them, I guess, you know, because it didn't do well and, you know, whatever happened, you know, we don't know all the details of all of that, but the bottom line is what really emphasized with me that he made it back home. He definitely made it back home.
0: Well, what's so fascinating to me now that I think about it is that in 1848, 49, slavery is still alive and well in South America, in the US, right? We're still the Union back then. The Union did, did not disintegrate until 1861. So he could have, I mean, he was vulnerable to being captured and enslaved all the way down and up the coast of South America, because we know there's slaves in Panama, oh. slaves in Ecuador, right? All the way back up north, there's slaves in Brazil. And then he sails past the deep south somewhere in 1848, 49, so was alive and well there. Had he been captured, he could have been taken and enslaved, but he made it back to Long Island. I just think that part's really extraordinary because he is a black man. And how is a black man traveling around the world on a boat freely?
1: What I want to say with that, Anthony, in my imagination, that I don't think he did it by himself. I think it was like a group of them had went. So say, for instance, might he have been on the ship with some white people? So he could have played it off that he could have been their slaves. You know, this is just my, when you don't have interpretation, I mean, you don't have details, you kind of try to figure out like how. So that was kind of what I thought about it too, because I was in the same place you was, Anthony. Like if he was by himself? I don't know if he would have made it back. So that's how I felt like perhaps he might have been on the ship or some of the boat with some of the white people, to be honest.
0: So when he comes back, and we'll get to his business in just a moment, that he started after he got back from that gold rush attempt that obviously went bust. Did he have a his family? Did he have a family to get married? I mean, what was his sort of family life like after you after got back?
1: His wife was named Rachel. So he had a family. He had a wife named Rachel, and he had two sons. And this is a thing that's very kind of hard for me as a mom and a grandma that his sons died early. And to this day, matter of fact, just yesterday, I was at an event at the South Edward Museum and I was inquiring because it was, you know, they have records there. And I've been doing research with these people for a while and we're still trying to find out how they died. And we still have not been able to come to that conclusion. But, you know, we're now targeting back to, there's a historian here in the town. So I contacted her and I made a suggestion to her that she would also contact the Presbyterian church because that's where Pierce Constant belonged to. And he was a devout Christian there and devout, you know, and it's another thing that he was even a member there. That's a whole nother awesome thing. But I said to myself, I said, well, if Pierce belonged there and his wife they were going there, I'm pretty sure... They might have had maybe even a funeral service for the children there or some kind of indication that, you know, he, something with the children. So that's where I am. And if I ever do find that out, trust me, I will give you that update.
0: And back then, the Presbyterian Church would have kept pretty meticulous records of all their baptisms, all of their members who were able to take communion. They would have kept birth records. They would have kept death records as well. And those funerals, they would have kept all that stuff in a ledger because they would have had to report those things to their Presbytery. So those, those records are there. And that, that Presbyterian angle, we'll, we'll get to in, in just a moment, I think, I think is another impressive part of, of Pierce's story. So he's got a family. His, unfortunately, his sons die really young, so he doesn't have any biological descendants uh, that way. But he had a family. He supported them by starting a business. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the enterprise that he formed. You
1: know, I think it's such an amazing thing because Lake Agawam Lake is, is here and that's where he came back from the gold rush and he started his own taxi ferry business, meaning that he took people from the lakeside to the ocean side. I think they said for a nickel, uh, he did that. And, you know, the bottom line is he made a lot of money and, it, you know, it rec- it's recorded that he had, you know, a savings of up to $2,000 for that time that's a lot of money. And with that, he actually, they also said, I think they said also he lent out some of his boats for whatever reason, you know, to get people, because I'm sure there was no roads here at the time. So that was their means of transportation. But the great thing about it is, I don't know if you want to continue. I think the next question you asked me about the Presbyterian church and how was he involved? Did you want me to continue that? Or you want me to ask more questions about his whaling adventures and how you make a living?
0: well i'm I'm curious to know a bit more about about this ferry business. It took people back and forth to the you said from the
1: from the lakeside to the ocean side. So if you were here when you were here at um uh, when you saw the site, you saw the you saw the lake there. Yes, so if you had went on that boardwalk and got stood in the middle, you'd have seen on the other side is the ocean. So he would take people from that lake side on that lake on across that lake to the other side which is the ocean.
0: Okay, so he basically had a a, a taxi business what we would call yeah. it today. It was a ferry taxi business as opposed to like a yellow cab, but he exactly. had a business. He had a, he had a, a legit business and he made substantial income. I, again, I'm just I am fascinated by the fact that he was freely able to launch a profit-making enterprise as a formerly enslaved man having been a whaler, having been someone who'd seen a lot of the world and this country having attempted that gold rush opportunity came back. And again, at this point, we're, you know, we're in the 1850s, 60s, etc. Slavery is still happening in the deep south. I wanna reiterate that. And here's a man in Long Island, right? Sort of in, in the Hamptons, who's running a business. And he's running a business in a community that used to have slaves, and he is a member in good standing in a predominantly white Presbyterian church. Do you know anything about how he became how how he ended up being in this in this church and, and what his relationship was with this with this church? Do you have any idea? All
1: I know is he was highly respected in the village of Southampton. And, you know, in, in spite of his beginnings, and I, my interpretation is I think you just had to be around this man to get who he was. You know, I have been on this journey with, with Pierce for a long time. I'm not related to him, but I feel connected to him. And I feel so connected to him that I feel like he was just this genuine, amazing, spiritual man that everybody just loved him. And you know, it's not the time right now, but I'm going to read a, I would love to read a poem, and it almost talks about him, and this was written in the 1800s by a man named John Halsey in the community. I don't think it's the time for that, but in this poem, it really talks about how they felt about him. I don't know if you want me to read it now, I can No, read please. It now.
0: no oh, please, please read it now. Yeah.:
1: I read it now. It's a little long, but I'm going to read it. It says, "Black as the Ace of Spades." I heard my older brother say it. Pierce was like that, good as gold. Father said both were true. One talked about the outside and the other about the inside. Both were true, equally true. Little gold rings in his ears, an African sure enough, but trusted by everybody, had his own pew in the church. Not way up front, but not way back either. He sailed a boat on the town pond in bid old age, carried the children to the beach, and charged a nickel. Everybody trusted Pierce. Mothers sent their children to the beach. He looked after them. Many fathers had reason to trust him. They'd been on the sea with him. He'd saved their lives. Of more than one of them, Everybody liked Pierce, good reason, exclamation mark. When he died, they put up a granite stone. We knew the day he died, of course, no one knew he was born, not even he. So on the stone was carved this from Tatis, I think. It was selected by Pierce's neighbor, Elu Root. I'll explain who that was. And it reads Though born a slave, he possessed those virtues without which all men are but slaves. Black as the ace of spades, good as gold, equally true. That was by Jesse Hall. That was written in the 1800s.
0: Wow. So we know that Pierce passed away in 1897. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about where he's buried. Is he buried like in an African American cemetery? Where, where do they lay him to rest?
1: He is actually in the southwest corner of an, what's called the Old North End Cemetery. It's an all white cemetery near Windmill Lane in the village of Southampton. And the amazing thing about that, because I know you probably want to ask me also, how would he even get there? Well, his neighbor, which I mentioned in the poem was Ella root. Ella Lou root is e l i h u r o o t. He was the thirty eighth u s. Secretary of State was his neighbor. So he purchased this tombstone for him,
0: so Pierce was was good and good standing, had a relationship with the thirty eighth Secretary of State of the United States of America. And the relationship was so endearing that this former Secretary of State, basically made it possible for Pierce to be laid to rest in this prestigious cemetery, but also to to contribute the funding to pay for his headstone and things like that. So it, it just really speaks to me that Pierce was beloved. He was beloved in the church community as well. Now, he had a business... He had these relationships. Was he a generous person with his money? I'm wondering when he passed away, did he leave anything to anyone?
1: Oh, he absolutely did. And this is the amazing thing that I want to share. Um, In 2015, we did a uh, ceremony dedicating him and we had a a New York State uh, historical sign that was erected on his property and we renamed the street. And at that time, I was out there, it was a whole bunch of people, it was a wonderful um, dedication to him. And I was talking about how he started a widow's fund and an educational fund at the Presbyterian Church. And my interpretation why he started the widow's fund, I believe he had compassion for all the women who lost their husbands at sea. But this educational fund that he started in the Presbyterian Church, it was 2015 we were doing this ceremony. Mind, we were talking about the 1800s when he did this. So I'm out there talking about how he started this educational fund, this Widows Fund. And this woman was in the audience and she was raising her hand. And I acknowledged her. I said, can I help you? She said, I belong to the Presbyterian Church. She said, and the educational fund is still active.
0: Wow, that's incredible. I mean, this, this is the first Presbyterian Church of Southampton. I believe it's about 300 years old. And they had an active former slave, not only be a member of the church, a contributor to the church, but also a man who left a legacy, both in terms of his person and financially to the church, because he was that much of a committed Presbyterian. And so I'm just more impressed by his story because again, it's 1897, right? And again, again, not to press the point, to, redundantly, in the Deep South, this would not have happened. If he was in Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, whatever, this wouldn't have happened. But there was something about about the way in which the culture of of Southampton made this possible. And I think more importantly, there's something about who he was as a person that endeared him to people in the community that allowed him to have a profit-making business but he was also a contributor to the church community there. So here's my assumption, because in my estimation, you can't get a more American story than Pierce concert. You cannot get a more American story, individual resilience, a story of liberty, a story of entrepreneurship, a story of freedom. And so my assumption is that his name is everywhere. In Southampton. I'm assuming there's probably multiple schools named after him. There's probably all kinds of buildings named after him. I'm assuming there's probably a big parade named after him. Because if I was someone who lived in Southampton or I was born and raised in Southampton, if I owned some property in Southampton, I would be bragging to my friends all over the world that I'm living in the same place that Pierce Conster lived. So can you tell us? a little bit about how the town is celebrating this, this man and, and what's there. I mean, how can people experience being engaged in this history when they visit Southampton? What's, what's going on there right now?
1: Okay, now, Anthony, this is going to be the hard challenge for me to answer this question because I have to say at one point a representative from Japan actually came to Southampton years ago to acknowledge uh, Pierce concert. They scrambled and found something, a monument to put together for him. Fast forward, since 2013, I'm going to make a a short story. I don't make it long, that we've been challenged. I got a call from the town saying that they were going to tear his house down. Because I'm a crazy advocate and activist in this community. I guess you didn't know that. So fast forward, I'm trying not to go fast forward, but I want to give you some little bit of details. I get a call from the town preservation, this woman who really, she's like a, uh, a hawk for all the different times when they're trying to tear down historical places. And so she knew me, she knows I'm an advocate for the community. So she called me and tell me, well Brenda, there's a family, there's people here trying to get a certificate of appropriation to tear his house down. So fast forward to starting an organization called the Pierce Concert Action Committee. And that was started in uh, October of 2013. And it was a group of us that, you know, came together and we were just determined to make sure that his building did not get torn down and his legacy remains. That when everything began to be a challenge. I don't know how much time we have. I don't know how much story I'm going to share with this, but the bottom line is we had a serious challenge, Anthony. It got to a point where people saying they want to build their dream house, And it was not their dream house they want to build. It was a bunch of investors. And basically what they want to do is take the house, they purchased the land for $2.5 million. And what they want to do is tear it down and put it back on the market for $5 million. But in the process that before that all came out, they were just coming before the Airbnb architect review board saying they just want a certificate appropriation to tear the house down so they can build their dream house. And as we talked earlier, when you have this spiritual thing, I just had this thing that it was all a lie. And because I was assistant to the mayor at the time, I had access to information. So I was able to Google their names to find out that they lived right next door. They already had their dream house. It was a bunch of investors. So unfortunately what happened was, it's very hard somehow to talk about this story because they ended up getting the certificate of appropriation. But prior to that, we were seeking out so many lawyers to try to help us because we were up against big time money and big, you know, this whole big lawyers and all this stuff. So we were able to get, this is a part of the story. I don't share all the time, but I'll share this today. We were able to get one lawyer to try to support us. Somehow or other, before it was all said and done, they called and said they couldn't represent us. We went to three different lawyers and the same thing kept happening. So our assumption was somehow that they might've gotten deterred from what they was coming up against or whatever. And I'm gonna humbly share this. I was going to college to be, at one point to probably be an attorney, but I had some family issues go on and I didn't proceed. But when it came down to the 11th hour, I stayed up that night I represented us and we won the case, but they turned around and sued the village for $10 million. And that's when all the backdoor stuff happened. I mean, my office is here. The mayor's office is right across the hall from me. I used to set up every last one of his appointments, every last one of them. All of a sudden, all these appointments, all these people going, going in and out of his office to the point where it came down to they allowed them to have Get the certificate of appropriation to tear the house down, but because of my relationship, I imagine with the mayor. I mean, I was there with him for eleven years. I watched his kids go to high school and graduate, go to college, and get married and kids. So I think maybe that had something to do with him finding someone to go in, a company to go in to dismantle what they finally said was Pierce Barnes's house. But they tore the other part of it down, and it was actually ended up being stored in a trailer at this point. When you came there, I don't know if you recognize seeing a trailer there. Well, his remains was in that trailer.
0: So the, the house that he had is in that trailer.
1: Yes. His remains of Pierce Conscious Homestead is in that trailer. So it's been since 2013, we've been trying to restore that house. And we have gotten so much backlash and so much pushback from peoples. We have to go before the zoning board of appeals.
0: Well, this is really an extraordinary story because, like I said a, a few minutes ago, I think Pierce Concer is probably the the poster child for how great America can be when people have freedom. And, I mean, this is a story of a man who was an entrepreneur, born a slave, became an entrepreneur, a churchman. He was a statesman. And it, to me, it's, it's extraordinary. I want to maybe use the word obscene. I, it's crazy to me. That the city of Southampton would be doing everything it could do to prop up this man's legacy, not just for the sake of, but I think I think the citizens of Southampton will be better off by knowing this story, having their children know this story. And when people will come to visit, I think it changes the, the sort of reputation, changes the narrative about the history of Southampton to know exactly mm-hmm. who was here. I would love for this to be a federal historic site because I think his his legacy is exactly is exactly the sort of story that the founders I would say wanted every citizen to have, although it wasn't really activated, you know, for another century and a half or so later, two centuries <laughs> later. But, but Pierce Conant's story is an absolute amazing story. I, I just hope the the residents and citizens of of Southampton come to appreciate this story as much as you do, as much as I do, and and hopefully maybe the Presbyterian Church there can rally behind and and get involved because I think his story is also a part of the Presbyterian narrative there on on Long Island and in and in Southampton in particular which is just so, so extraordinary. I'm really thankful for your work and, and really excited for the future. I think if, if we can get more voices involved to introduce his legacy. And it, it, what's interesting to me, for those of you who are going to go to, to Southampton and see this, it sort of fits the geography because there's the lake across the street. There's a park across the street. There's another, there's another memorial right across the street. And so if you look at how it's situated in the neighborhood, it would completely fit to have another historic site honoring this man's legacy and to sort of speak into what's happened there. Can you tell us, as we wrap up here, can you tell us a little bit more about the museum you founded and the work that you're doing in general there in, in Southampton?
1: As I mentioned, and maybe I did mention, I was actually born and raised here in Southampton. And I was actually the assistant to the mayor here in the village of Southampton for 11 years. And this building was originally a barbershop.
0: And that's, that's the building you're in right now?
1: That's the building I'm in right, right now that I'm sitting in. And it's the first African-American site to be historically designated. And just as a side, I was also the recording secretary for the village of Southampton. And I say, I was not only taking minutes, but I was taking notes. And there was a small portion in the legislation that talked about how to historically a building. And it was a small portion that said if it was significant to the community. And that's what I pulled out. I pulled that out. I found on the other side of this building, there was a juke joint restaurant. I found the juke joint singer that sang in the 40s and the 50s. I found a couple of band leaders. And I interviewed all of them and I came back before the architect review board. So that's how I was able to get this building historically designated. And it is also the first black barbershop to be transformed into a museum in the country. So I have done this. And not only that, my auntie was the first beautician here. The, when Emmanuel Simo, who came through the great migration in the late forties, he actually purchased this building And he built this as a barbershop, half a barbershop and half a beauty parlor. And my auntie was the beautician here. So when I was like 13 or 14 years old, I used to literally come here and answer the phones for her and write appointments down for her. So this building is very, very significant to me. And at one point, a letter came across the mayor's desk to tear this building down. And so I went in front of the mayor and I, you know, jokingly, I said, you know, I'll be the crazy woman in front of the bulldozer, because this is not gonna happen. So fast forward, that's how I was able to get this building historically designated. And Pierce Constant is one person that I emphasize here. And we were able to get a $125,000 digital tapestry grant. And Anthony, when you come back, you're gonna have to have that experience. It's augmented it virtual reality, where actually Pierce comes alive and talks about his history. And we, I was actually part of creating that app, which I'm very humbly proud to say. So we have a lot of students come through here, which I think is really important to me, especially with the CRT that's going on, trying to erase our history. So a lot of students come in here, mainly white students come in here. They have a great camp group that came here over a couple of, of the summer, and they come and they experience, they hear about the history here in Southampton and the black people that were here and significantly contributed to this village.
0: It's really extraordinary because I never would have associated the Hamptons with a history of Black freedom. I wouldn't have associated the Hamptons with slavery. I wouldn't have associated it with whalers. I mean, this is such an extraordinary work that you're doing. And I am extremely, I mean, you know, in in one sense, I'm still bewildered by this. But secondly, I'm just really proud of the work that, that, that you're doing. If someone wanted to find the museum, the work that you're doing when they visit Southampton, how might they go about doing that?
1: They can go about going first. they can go to the website, www.saamuseum.org. And also you can call 631-353-3299. Again, that's 631-353-3299. And it's located at 245 North Sea Road in Southampton.
0: Well, Brenda Simmons, thank you so much for enlightening us with this extraordinary history of this man, Fierce Concert. And I'm telling people right now, when you go to the Hamptons, yes, you can shop. Yes, you can eat. Yes, you can rent a really expensive place while you're there. But another reason to go there is to immerse yourself in this unknown recently discovered black history there to enrich your experience and what Brenda Simmons is doing and her colleagues is just yeoman's work. And I'm really excited opportunities for people to come by and be educated and to have their minds expanded by by this history. So Brenda, thank you so much for joining us today on the Anthony Bradley show. I would also like to thank my Patreon supporters for your very generous support of this project. If it were not for your generosity and support, this project would not be possible. You are the most important part of this experience. So if you like this episode and enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment on the various platforms where the podcast is heard. And I look forward to exploring more issues with you again from my vantage point here at the Atkin Institute and Hyper College in Grand Rapids, Michigan on the Anthony Bradley Show. <laughs>